Hello, everyone. Welcome to Behind the Movement. I am Kyle Fincham. My guest today is David Cam. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. It was really wonderful to connect with David. Before I do, these are my announcements. The first is I am doing a, a weekly class here in New York while I'm around every Saturday from 12 to 2 p.m. in Prospect Park. Um, I've done two of them so far. They've been really wonderful. The one we did yesterday was epic and amazing. It was a huge turnout. We had such a blast. Um, so if you want to join, I'd love to have you there. You can always email me uh, to get more information. It's just theinfiniteplayguy at gmail.com. Um, it's a donation-based event, so you can pay what you can to, uh, to come and participate. Everyone in all levels is welcome to join. So uh, if it's something you're interested in, you're in or near New York, I would love to see you there. And uh, I'll be doing that every Saturday for the, uh, the near future. Um, also, I send out a weekly newsletter that I call the Moves Letter. Um, in it, I give some updates. I always write uh, an article um, talking about some ideas or wonderings or questions or things that I'm uh, curious about. Um, also, I provide some recommendations for books and movies and television shows and podcasts and other things that I think uh, are, are worth checking out or have influenced some of the things that I'm presenting. Um, yeah, and then various forms of updates. So if you want to subscribe to that, you can go to my website, kylefincham.com, and there is a uh, uh, on pretty much every page an option to subscribe. So that's what I got. Those are my quick updates. I'll leave it at that for now. There will be more infinite play related things and workshop things in the in the you know in the coming weeks or months, but for now I will uh, I will leave it there. Um, yeah, as I said, my conversation was with David Cam, and it was such a, a treat to connect with him. If you're not familiar with David, here's some of his background. Uh, David is a London-based movement specialist, yoga teacher, and speaker exploring mindful movements in playful situations. His degrees in architecture and dance have shaped his interest in discovering what it means to feel at home in our bodies and at peace with our actions. For David, it's never from achieving the best technique, but the reclaiming of function and freedom of expression, perhaps making some new friends along the way. It is about self-dare and collective care. David activates communities around the world, holding brave spaces for others to embody the wonder and well-being by queering the practices of movement. He works regularly with charities to advocate for joyful activism and culturally sensitive well-being amongst underprivileged communities. David is also the founder of Kindred Packet, a grassroots organization raising joy, care, and connection amongst East and Southeast Asian communities in London and beyond. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, if you're anywhere in or near uh, London, I strongly suggest uh, connecting with David. I think he is going to be doing some, uh, some semi-regular offerings out there, um, but also connect with him online to stay up to date on, on all his other goings on. Um, so let's not waste any more time. This is my conversation with David Cam. I'm traveling a little bit over the, the coming months. So I think my next trip will be to Atlanta. 
um, and yeah, okay. yeah, it's for um, an event with Lululemon, and I think they have like a um, a 10k run event. So I'm just I'm heading there to support them a little bit. Uh, then I'm heading to Basel, but yeah, those are all just kind of uh, friends trip and you know less work, which is quite nice. Uh, very welcome trips for rests. <laughs> You should, uh, yeah. I mean, if you're coming to Atlanta, you should try to come through New York. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if I have much leeway in, because they're organizing all the flight and stuff. So because we're traveling as a team, I'm not sure if there's leeway in detouring. However, I think next year I'm I'm hoping to drop by San Francisco for sure. Um, and maybe at some point later in the year, New York, that'd be really nice. I, I went, I think about four years back and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. What, what, do, you, what yeah. do you do for Lululemon? Uh, well, I work in partnership with them. So a lot of kind of um, with their campaigns and just, you know, looking at um, the kinds of concepts that they, um, you know, um, they would like us to activate. I help them hold community spaces. So, you know, if uh, there are any kind of events within London or across Europe, um, I'll just, you know, help them basically just activate the community and get get the people together through moving and some mindfulness stuff. Nice. I, you know what I really found interesting about their kind of organization is it's mm. like every store is kind of its own community and they like, yes. and they kind of let the store have some amount of like autonomy and they mm -hmm. can like bring in teachers and like, I don't know, mm. I, I got to teach at one here in Brooklyn a few times and it just seemed mm. like they, everybody felt invested in it. Like from all yes. the managers, they felt like a family. Mm. I think it's, it's the one thing they've been very successful at in translating this sense of culture because they recently, well, no longer recently, but um, back in Malaysia where I, I was born and bred, um, they opened two stores and I had a hard time just imagining how they could translate the culture back home but they actually did it very seamlessly and it's very nice to see <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm i was pleasantly surprised and yeah also everybody's kind of yeah they're i guess that's part of the culture is this like passion mm -hmm. like what they want to see in there and like and, and i guess what they're saying is like there's like the broad culture of lululemon but also like there's almost like these like micro cultures in each store totally totally yeah. Mm. I, I, so I, I saw that you taught at um, the Ferris Enemy. Uh, yeah. How was that? That was incredible. That was a very welcome space for, for movement that I've really been craving because I've spent the past three years specializing in uh, a specific movement study called cardiological studies. And um, that's basically looking at lava notation, which I'm not sure um, if it's something that you're... Yeah, so lava notation is basically uh, a framework to explore and analyze and articulate movement. Um, but it's coming from a very cerebral lens. Uh, so, you know, I've spent three years doing that and I was really craving, you know, just a lot more direct embodied work. So then um, I literally just finished the three years and that following week was you know teaching at Ferris Anime uh for for a fortnight 
And um, it was really nice because I got to contextualize what I've learned uh, immediately to this uh, beautiful group of open-minded movers from all disciplines and in nature as well, which is an absolute treat. Um, and the weather was very um, cooperative at that point too. So it just felt like a fortnight of very casual exchanges of movement perspectives from all of the, not just teachers, but the attendees. So yeah, it was fantastic. Um, what, can you explain a little bit more like what you were studying for the last three years? Like, can you talk a little bit, yeah, maybe like in more in depth? I'm yeah. Curious. Yeah. Well, um, so chronological studies is a, a framework that is based off Rudolf Laban's philosophies. Um, and he basically was one of the like pioneering uh, figures who have looked at movement from a place of, okay, well, let's break down what it is that we actually see in movement. How do we describe it? How do we explain the, the unseen aspects of movement? So if you look at, you know, all of them, uh, forms that we see in contemporary times. So like yoga or dance or um, even martial arts, uh, they are predominantly form-based. You see a stance, you see an asana, you see a dance, um, maybe a dance term like a pirouette, uh, you know, a padasha, like there are specific terms that becomes quite quantified. But if we break it down to say the, the energetics of, of movement, how do you actually talk about it without borrowing from the language of music, for example. So, you know, the easiest thing to um, consider this in is, you know, if we go and watch a dance performance and when you hear people talking about it, there's always this sense of abstractness. It's like, well, I, I don't quite know how to explain what I've just seen. <laughs> so then um, this framework, uh, chronological studies is really breaking that down. Traditionally, it's used to, um, well, not chronological studies, but uh, an aspect of it, which is lab notation, is uh, used um, as a way to preserve classical dance pieces. So um, in a kind of how art pieces can be archived in, in museums and galleries, how do you preserve dance? Because, you know, it's performed by the body and obviously the body is impermanent if that person passes away then well how, how do you carry that on so then lab notation is just um, a way of writing movement similar to the way you score music um, that then becomes a piece of paper that future dancers can can access and read and re-perform it beyond um, just the, the the forms of the dance but maybe about the energetics or maybe about the relationships yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because, lot. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I totally get it because in all forms of movement, there are mm. like the forms or the moves or the techniques, but there's mm. the space in between them that are kind yeah. of the more like abstract or I always say that's like kind of mm. like the spirit or like the downbeat, right? Yes. And it's the place that we can't always attach words to. And in some ways, I'm a big mm. fan of not having all the words, but I understand the, the value in being able to create some sort of notation for what those things are so that mm. there's some sort of way of, of, of scoring it. Mm. I mean, it's still absolutely flawed <laughs> in a way where I still will not score movement the way it's traditionally done because um, 
in the context of what I do, which is mainly teaching and facilitating ways of moving, um, to score a, a piece of uh, movement phrase that maybe is 15 seconds would probably take me an hour to do so. So it's highly inefficient. However, the framework um, behind the scoring really would allow someone to break down the specificity of how you would want to move you know whether or not the movement is more about the quality if it's actually more about the form if it's about the timing if it's about the relationship um, and that is i think what's really beautiful about um how this framework allows you to articulate these and uh, the scoring part is probably more just the visual part and um in my understanding within the context of me studying that course it's a way of the teachers gauging if i fully understand the concept but now that I'm done with it, I don't think it's something I would, you know, actively ask for people to, you know, try and write down, mm -hmm. but more just understanding the, the philosophies behind it. Right. It adds to your way of perceiving movement. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, um, yeah, I think that that's really, so how has that kind of influenced how you facilitate? Uh, I feel it's given me a much deeper layer of, you know, how free-form movements can be facilitated. Um, so my background is actually in architecture before I moved into dance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also particularly why uh, chorological studies really resonated with me because um, they basically look at movement in five strands. So looking at movement from the lens of action, um, space, which is why, you know, from the architecture side is mind-blowing, uh, relationships, as I've said, dynamics, and um, what was the last one? Mm, I can't remember what I've said now. But yeah, that's essentially five uh, lens. And those are the lenses that you can then play with. So for example, if I were to um, facilitate a session, I can absolutely hone into the, the focus of one aspect or even focus on the absence of one or two aspects. And that way it would just completely change the energy of what is brought up in, in you know, the um, in the bodies of these movers attending my sessions. Um, for background, I mainly offer yoga sessions. So my um, anchoring or my intention has always been how to expand the capacities for someone to find pleasure in their body or, or in a, well, in their body mind or the capacity for ex expression. And so I usually start with uh, form you know, traditional forms, very known and very familiar to the, the movers. So, you know, asanas and from that facilitating them through these uh, lenses and seeing how they could break away from that form, um, you know, in, for example, relating their upper body to their lower body or relating to each other. Um, or another day it would be about um, looking at the, the quality between one posture to another and how you could break that um and yeah mm -hmm. i appreciate mm. that i think that like um maybe there's like this like feeling that there's going to be like pleasure by like knowing all the asanas for example 
and maybe in like a in that context it can be pleasureful or it can feel expressive but like if we only stay in that place and then we walk into the world with just those forms right mm -hmm. there might be this feeling of 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 fear or anxiety from like the rigidity mm -hmm. of only having access to those forms mm -hmm. which would be mm -hmm. not pleasurable uh yes um, so i i find it interesting the idea of being like oh well here are the forms and now let's kind of like turn them into like play-doh and start Purifying mm. them a little bit. Yeah, because um, again, you know, my anchoring is always from the place of yoga philosophies. And, you know, yeah. we, well, I've learned that asana, the postures are essentially there as an element of your practice to prepare you for the seat of meditation, metaphorically. And so it's never been set in stone, um, you know, where you have to do these few postures to be able to then meditate. And so, you know, a big question for me is, okay, then um, what, what feels most relevant at this time for, you know, people to be able to access that place of meditation? So, um, you know, I equate that to um, possibly, you know, the state of, of, of flow, you know, how, how do people tap into that place? And um, for me, often it is in, discovering new things or you know be um that state of being very invested in a task um, and that could still be form for some people um but it's about again expanding the scope of um invitation so how how wide can i open the door mm -hmm. and it's essentially that and by learning this um you know what, what i've spent three years in i think it's just given me as many options um, that I can now offer to to movers so that they can then choose where they'd like to go towards what that place of pleasure or, or flow or meditation is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you use mm -hmm. the word options there, like for yourself. And I always think to myself that <clears throat> the magic is in having more options. And mm -hmm. it's not necessarily in like having uh, just the techniques, but the techniques are great too. But you talked about kind of like, ways of relating and emotions and all these things. And these are all kind of like that body of options that we have. And I think mm -hmm. that we can sometimes like limit our options based on our, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, what society expects of us or ego or any of these things. Like they all are kind of like mm -hmm. the inherent like limiting of options. And I, yeah. you know, kind of what you're describing makes me think of that idea where it's like, it's not about having all the moves, but the moves are great or the techniques, mm -hmm. but also just like, having more options in terms of like the way that you can kind of walk into a space, like just feeling kind of like less, less limited. And that's a mindset. That's what's in your body. That's a lot of things. It's, um, you know, I, I was chatting to a friend uh, recently and he shared this metaphor that I really resonated with. And it's basically an aquarium. And, you know, you, if you look at an aquarium tank, um, from the four different angles, you get completely different views of what is essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, it is that, you know, and it's like, well, however many fishes you have there, then, you know, it, it, it stays sort of, of the same. And so I think that's why um, I've definitely stopped looking too much into um, like definitive 
forms per se, but in the ways of uh, approaching. And so, you know, with all these aspects that I've listed, it's a way of kind of looking at the same thing, but just turning the, the perspective a little bit so that they can consider um, aspects of the same thing that they've never really looked into. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so then what, what or how did you present at the um, intensive there in London with Ferris Anime? Yeah, well, first, uh, well, what we, the way we structure it, the, the days have been where we start the day with something called Morning Forms that's led by Tom or, or Tina, the, the, the main leads of the collective. Uh, and the purpose of those forms are essentially going through movements that you want to retain in your body for the rest of your life. Uh, that's it. So everyone, you know, um, like both Tom and Tina, they have slightly different approaches to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but fundamentally, it's the functions of your body you'd like to retain. And then we go into, uh, you know, um, the, the main chunk of the day would be exploring just different approaches to, to movement, mostly in partner work, and that would also include elements of rhythm. And then I come in at the end of the day simply to wash the day and to, to give people um, an, an opportunity to reset um, and also digest, you know, how like the, the day has been for them, because obviously it would be quite a bit of an information overload, not just that, you know, in moving in nature, it is quite a sensory overload as well. So specifically for that fortnight, I focused on desensitizing and um, allowing people that space to, to rest through a slightly more passive um, visit of, of, of movements through their, their body. Um, and in the way I, I share that, you know, we were um, firstly, matless, which was so nice, just, you know, by, by the grass, there's no defined confines uh, per individual. And then from there, I would just guide them through firstly, the experiencing of the general space. So a lot of um, interacting with um, nature as tactile surfaces that can inform the way that they move and the way that they receive. Um, that's always something very grounding uh, for, for, for movers in, in, in general and for the mind. Um, and then beyond that, I would lead them through a blueprint of um, very open forms, uh, which I then layer options of uh, how they can weave through these forms. So for example, you know, just offering four, um, you know, basic forms of the body and then allowing them to uh, find their own pathways um, in and out through their own sequence of the four um, forms and, and just keep nudging them towards that place of pleasure. That, that's down to me a lot in terms of observation, just seeing, you know, what, what is it that people respond to and then just kind of uh, nudging them a little bit further towards that space. Mm -hmm. mm. And what, and, and what were kind of some of like, um, I don't know, like your observations or, or experiences that you like witnessed in people through that? Mm, um, what I really love in, in the nature of this practice is, uh, firstly, you know, you, you've talked about 
sometimes you know there, there are things that just cannot be explained in 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 words and i think that really is the the kind of what underpins this session where at times you know you just need to go through moving in the body without um being in that state of oh i'm here to to either pick up a new technique or i'm here to perform i'm here to impress and just I'm here to unwind. I'm here to process. Like, what what would that bring up? And I think that is what I feel most interested in, like sharing and and facilitating movement in that state of um, restoration, in that state of like that that middle point um, that is between performative and restorative. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I um. <clears throat> I think that that it's a, a space that is like under underutilized when it might be to me a space that like matters as much if not more because it's like it's the space of like presence. Yeah, and I think there's like a lot. I, I talked to this uh, guy Aaron Cantor on the podcast, mm. and he referred to it as like there's this there are like kind of two places where we can practice. Like one is like the being, and one is the becoming. Mm-hmm. And we kind of agreed that there's a lot of time spent in becoming, mm-hmm. not a lot of time spent in being. Absolutely. And they dance and they dance together, but right now the scales are kind of like um, mm. tilted. There's a lot of the becoming because the becoming is very likable on Instagram, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and the being is like the thing that we can't always explain. And it's going to be different for everybody mm. uh, because we get so caught up in like the idea of like, what's supposed to happen that we might miss out on like what's happening right now. And like what you're talking about is like, Oh, like, let's just see what's happening right now. Mm, mm. Absolutely. And also I think with, with being, it sometimes can be very associated to stillness. And whilst yes, I think um, a big part of being is stillness, but I think there's also space for movement to come in that state of being um, and I think sometimes when you train, uh, there is an aspect of rhythm that you just can't help but uh, uh, have to go go towards. Like you know, say if you were to have to pick up a phrase, you you won't really be offered the chance to fully slow down to a rhythm of your choice because the whole point of it is the essence of speed. Say for example, and to offer them this space of being that almost acts like a sandbox that you know they can sort of go and almost revisit these movements that may have come from any other practices um but really looking at that in in their own rhythms i think that's highly useful mm-hmm. mm. yeah well i mean that's the, the it sounds like the space of like tinkering or trial and error or like it's yes. you know it's it's play you know like and that's that's what i've been like touring and, and presenting is like play and yeah mm. it just sounds like that's that's so similar to like what you're describing yes yeah mm-hmm. and, mm. and and it's interesting because it's like people don't need permission to be in that place of becoming because it seems like it's so tangible and it matters so much because it's like so kind of goal-oriented and defined Mm-hmm. So it's like, you don't even need permission because it's just kind of fits what the world and society looks like. Like, you know, these things that you can collect and hold on to. 
and like mm-hmm. looking to the future or like dwelling on the past where it's like you need someone like you to like mm-hmm. oftentimes be like no you have permission to be in the being and kind yeah. of like explore it in all the ways and kind of like interweave like the things mm-hmm. that we can hold on to and the things that are not quite as like mm-hmm. um, tangible mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the closest things, um, you know, that uh, I guess echo this nature of of moving is improvisation sessions, and I I love that space just because it is essentially that you know where people um, come together and um, get almost guided on this this journey that is so. Uh, open yet cohesive when you look at the the group together Um, and so a lot of teaching right now is breaking down the uh, I wouldn't want to say breaking down the specificity because I think uh, what is being offered is still very specific but just again this uh, opening of invitations like how can the invitations that um, I share as a facilitator become as open-ended as possible so that you see a level of cohesion but still a very divergent sense of interpretations of responses yeah well it makes me think that like constraints are very different from rules Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like if you and i are hiking up a mountain you both of us have the constraint of like this mountain that we're on the side of and that's like but that's the constraint Mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm. it's not a rule of like we'll stay exactly on this path it's more just like oh like explore how you get up and down the mountain mm-hmm. and we're both going to do it in different ways whereas a rule is like no here's here's the box that you have to stay in mm-hmm. and that's what i always think of with improvisation is that like it's it's a place of constraints it's not a place of like rules totally totally mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. how do you do you, I mean, in like your own day-to-day practice, what does like improvisation look like or that kind of exploration? Yeah, um, I think it's improvisation day in, day out in how I look at what practice I go into every day. Mm-hmm. So um, I think lately practice has looked like a lot of boot camps actually, because I feel like I've been very zened out by by yoga and like uh, just movements that are a little bit gentler that the body's forgetting that place of aggression um, and also um, external weight that I think sometimes can be a little bit shunned in, in the movement or mobility world where, you know, it's like, oh yeah, the, the body is self-sufficient, but I think um, I, yeah, like, um, I think there is still a place for it that is quite in, intriguing. Um, so yeah, personally for me, uh, lately it's been quite a bit of uh, weight training, speed training, uh, because those are my blind spots as of now. Mm-hmm during busy days, it really would be, um, you know, like um, five to 10 minute improvisation in my bedroom (laughs) Uh, and always led by pleasure, just places that I need to mobilize to serve the things that I have to do uh, that day. Um, My other main consistent practice would also be singing actually, because um, I think, you know, being trained as a dancer 
there's um, a lot more comfort in in the articulation of my body than my voice. And I think this is the part of movement that I find I'm least aware of, especially, you know, when you're asked to really not move and plant yourself on the ground so that this can travel, like this, your voice can travel. I think that's really fascinating, especially when we look into the relationship of that to breath work, uh, which then will then, in, you know, inherently influence the, the way you can play with your breath in in moving yes. so yeah like voice work has been very fascinating yeah I feel like it's a place that's like not talked about a lot in the world of movement is the voice <clears throat> and I think about like some teachers who I've really loved spending time with there's often like play with the voice because like the, 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 the sounds we make will influence the movements mm. um, and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, like I got to, when I was in theater school, I had a great teacher and there'd be so much of just like, you know, kind of gibberish singing that we would do to like kind of influence, like maybe take us into just uh, places that we were not going to find otherwise. Um, mm. I got to do a, a workshop with Martin Kilvati and he does a lot of like, oh, you know, like these things that kind of like mm. make you follow the voice into like new places to try to like give um give some sort of uh, example of like what the movement is that he's like looking for because you can't talk about it as we were saying. It's like you can only kind of like create some sort of metaphor or poetry or like sound that's an example of it. Mm. And, uh, I think that there's a lot there. I mean, there's, you know, I'm, I also like fight and there's a lot of kind of like, like voice and things that come out when you, when you're fighting. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's neglected. I don't have an answer for it, but I think that it's a place that deserves a little bit of time. You know, we, we briefly chatted about this in how like in an ideal world, <laughs> movement practice is quite synonymous to sound like as in they should go really hand in hand because you know um in eastern cultures and eastern practices it is like that um you know my very first uh, exposure to movement practice is the chinese drums you know the ones that you'd see over lunar new year with a with a lion dances yeah when we learn that um it's a high it's a highly physical instrument in some ways where you know we would essentially dance around the drum and you know work with defining the rhythms uh you know and, and how it hit the drums and so every time we we mark these movements they're always accompanied by verbal you know uh, cues of what we do with the with with the drumming you know and i think that's also very similar to um certain uh, dance forms like kathak the indian dance forms where you know every detail that they do is verbally echoed by uh, what they're doing in their steps. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like it's, it's those kind of uh, sounds. And I think, um, yeah, like I'm witnessing an increasing uh, integration of, of sound and, and breath into movement practices. And I think that is very welcomed and, and very encouraging to see. Yeah. I, um... When I do my workshops, I'll sometimes do some like play with like gibberish and having conversations mm-hmm. in gibberish. 
Mm. Are these like made up languages. So we'll like oscillate between like movement kind of nonverbal conversations and these like verbal conversations that are in like an abstract language. Mm. And yeah, I also think that it really demonstrates like our capacity for communicating mm. without even the actual words. Mm. You know, like just kind of mm. like the, the sounds and, and, you know, on the communication level, we have such like a rich capacity to communicate. Mm. And I feel like we kind of like skim just like not even like a full layer of the onion. Mm. Totally, totally. And it's just constantly, you know, finding uh, different ways. And, you know, I think with that, um, the exercise that you suggested then, you know, what you've, you've introduced, I think it definitely would have opened up you know, a whole new way of um, expressing and observing as well, you know, just observing like what it is uh, that I can listen for um, in a place where I can't logically understand, uh, you know, what what's coming out of this person's mouth. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about um, your, your study of uh, architecture, because I mm. find I mean, I've, I read a couple books, but they're probably more like in like the realm of like phenomenology. Yeah. I find that like, it's so translatable to like everything else in, mm-hmm. in art and movement. Um, yes. So I'm curious, I mean, did you work professionally as an architect or just study? No, well, I did my, I'm not sure if it's the same in the US, but I did my part one, which is the bachelor's equivalent. Um, and during my, like, during the year after graduation, where we would typically go to placements, that's when I did my gap year in dance. And since I've never really looked back, <laughs> but a lot of my research in dance has been quite heavily informed by by architecture. Um, and, you know, with everything you said about phenomenology, I think if you haven't heard of this author, Juhani Palazma. I read, uh, I was just going to bring it up, the, the eyes. Eyes of the skin. Eyes of the skin. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Incredible book. Yes. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's, I think it's work that is so, um, like one of the most prominent bridges to how interconnected um dance is to to architecture it really is just a scaled down version of of architecture and i guess um you could also place them on a spectrum where you know architecture being on one end dance being the other end that's more time inclined where you know with architecture being more space inclined um and i think it's just really fascinating uh, when you're able to, you know, with, with what I've studied recently, it's basically about being able to integrate them both and, you know, seeing what that then means. So, you know, an example of um, where these frameworks can be applied are like in movement directing, but sometimes even in like, I think one example that we did was uh, transposing our mobile number into a, a dance phrase. <laughs> Like, yeah, like all of these are, are possibles. And even, you know, there are numbered locations in space that we can work through um, when you define the, the shape of your kinesphere. Um, again, these are like games that, you know, you, you play with the same way you introduce 
uh, gibberish talking. You know, it's like we know we we think of this kinosphere as you know the Da Vinci Code kind of like a globe-like thing around us. But what if it is a, a cube? What if it is you know um, elliptical? And how would that change? Uh, the way we might behave in in space, and if you zoom it all the way out, then how would that look like as well in the body, but also maybe in the building? Um, I think uh, I know a few architect friends who have used theories of of dance to inform their design process as well. Especially, you know, the the buildings that are more uh, rooted in the concept of movement. Um. And I think as you're like talking about this, and then and, and I, I read that book a while back. Um, mm. And I was also, I think, not long before I had read Eyes in mm. the Skin, I had read um, Poetics of Space. Yes. Which is, I maybe, Bachelard. yeah, and maybe Bachelard was like a, someone who influenced Palasma, because I feel like there was like, and maybe he yeah, referenced it in the book. Um, yeah. But yeah, kind of what you're talking about makes me think about like the word sensitivity, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, um, you know, like we have this like rich capacity for mm. sensitivity and mm. like these realms. So it's like, you know, exploring sensitive, sensitivity through space, but also exploring it through time, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And like we, you know, like the, 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 how do I say this? Like we, yeah, we have this capacity for like a high level sensitivity and it's something that like we don't always explore, mm -hmm. but it might actually be the base because it's something that's talked about like across all different mm. forms and, and practices, mm. but it's, it's almost like kind of skipped over unless you're like a hunter or a gardener, you know, mm. Um, mm. like I had this conversation when I was in Milan doing jujitsu and the guy who was teaching was really brilliant. And he just said, you know, in jujitsu, the base is sensitivity. That's, mm -hmm that's where it all has to begin. Like if we like lack sensitivity, like these other things might not matter. And like, that's kind of mm -hmm. what I felt like we were kind of tiptoeing around here. It's like, oh yeah, like our, our potential to see and hear a lot more than like what we allow ourselves mm -hmm. to see and hear. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes um, with the, the possibility to weave in and out, in and out. And, and it's, it's that, right? Cause um, I think, um, you know, with this idea of architecture and dance, what I noticed, you know, when you asked me about what I, um, kind of like my, my discoveries when holding movers in, in my practice, for example, what I see tangibly are movers dipping in and out of their vision. So I would see them moving and sometimes closing their eyes and opening their eyes and closing and opening again. And, um, I've heard this phrase from a dear friend again, a colleague, and she always coins the terms inner and outer ocean of awareness. And it's, it's that, you know, where you can go into yourself, into that place of, you know, um, sensitivity inwards and discovering what's inside and then sometimes reconnecting that back out to what you sense on the, the, the outside. And I think that is what is so beautiful about like Johanny's work and, and Gaston's work as well, you know, in, in the way they describe things, you know, with like, you know, eyes uh, being windows, 
you know, and the our pores as as doors almost. And you know, if we we think of it like that, then we we can almost sense as if our body is a a, a building, and that we can inhabit it, but we can also experience through it. Um, and I remember it in. I believe it's the Eyes of the Skin book, I'm not sure, or maybe a, a more recent book, uh, you know, by someone exploring a similar place. They said, you know, the, they talked about the possibility of exploring the immense through the intimate and the intimate through the immense. And it's that, you know, flux that keeps tipping from one end to another, one end to another. And that uh, goes back to, you know, uh, what ancient yoga texts, have suggested, you know, the point of yoga being the yoking, you know, the, the connecting, the, the bridging of these two places, the, the yin and yang almost, right? That the in-between. Um, so I think this place of being is uh, that that space where you you get to take the time to to weave these two aspects of you together. Um, what I said earlier being the, the performative and the restorative. Yeah, yeah. It's really beautiful. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a very binary world, right? It's a lot of people. Mm. We're all influenced by it, but it's a a lot of this or that, as opposed to the, maybe saying, oh, well, maybe it's this and that, mm-hmm. right? And mm. yeah, I think it's um, I think, and it, maybe it's a thing that I often think is like left out of movement is kind of like I mean, I think there's obviously like talks of you know, like internal practice or, or mm. these things, but not often realizing that like, it, it doesn't need to be kind of like separated, like exactly happening simultaneously. Like, you know, exactly. what happens if we like really just even just have the awareness that like, we're having this like internal world and this external world that are like occurring all at once. So like our emotions are influencing what's happening in the external world. The external world is influencing our emotions, for example. And like, it's, it's an all at onceness. It's not this happens over here and then this happens over there. Totally. I think this is why I will forever be in love with the yin yang symbol. It just explains it all. It really explains it all where, you know, even in the most yang moment, there is that little dot that shows that, you know, the yin moment still exists there at the same time. And to look at the symbol as a whole, you know, it's all happening concurrently and that's what makes it harmonious um and to separate it i think uh, can be useful uh intellectually to understand both ends of things and uh, you know what what these polarities can bring up in this but it's important to not forget that you know ultimately like things are always happening all at the same time <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and i you know, I, this is why, not just this, but like what we're talking about is like the reason why, like when I saw that you guys were doing that intensive all outdoors, mm. you know, I, I do all my stuff outdoors for mm. the most part. And it was actually greatly influenced by like, um, uh, like Palasma and, and Bachelard because it, it mm. you know, we need to like, see things and feel things and listen to things and they're in our, in our kind of like the way we've evolved to i say need nothing needs to happen but like if we're kind of exploring what it means to be a human animal mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. looks a lot more like being with things and spaces and people and mm-hmm. ourselves and like uh, in deeply authentic ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that kind of also maybe has the potential to like reduce that feeling of like duality, right? Totally. It's yeah. like you are there and maybe you're the dot in the yin and yang, but then like you're in this space and you're with these people and now it's this like full thing of like, and it's all, all of us mm-hmm. and all of these things simultaneously because like our mm-hmm. senses are all alive and like participating in this, like, I don't know, beautiful, authentic symphony or something. Mm. Absolutely. And I think it, it just presents a much richer place for listening and sensitivity, right? Because there's so much there that um, is happening that I think there's no other option but really to learn to uh, sensitize and and, and adapt and, and, and listen, which is what I think is so beautiful. And I think what I really appreciate from that sense, from the perspective of teachers and facilitators as well, is that it definitely keeps you on your toes. It keeps you very present, you know, in facilitating because you have to take into account like, okay, like how long can the group withstand extreme heat for, you know? And I think those things are always what I try to, um, or those states are what I try to strive towards every time I teach, you know, being in a place where I don't feel too, complacent or or I feel too figured out and you know to that place of oh okay I'm not completely sure what's gonna um what I'm gonna do later but then um you know I I will be very present and attentive um so I'm I'm very sure with that in reverse for um, any participants or just people moving in general that would be the consideration that they would have needed to have yeah I'm I'm with you I think that you know, we kind of like emphasize the knowing more than the listening, but as like a facilitator, like the listening might matter more than the knowing. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? yeah. Because listening isn't just the ability to like hear. Listening is also the ability to like hear and react. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're there, you know, rather than going up and being like, well, I have this like uh, exact painting that I mm. paint every time that we do this and I have all the lines drawn out and I'm just going to get up there with the colors. It's showing up and being like, I don't know, I'm showing up with a canvas, but all these other people are showing up with the colors and the ideas. So we're going to paint something together. Totally, totally. Yeah. And it just makes it so rewarding when it's that way. Cause um, yeah, it's, it's meeting others halfway, no? And then um, really investing in that, sense of collective energy uh, than like a singular vision that's then, you know, kind of um, uh, adhered to by by others. So I think that's um, what works so well in the fortnight that we had. Um, I also wanna, I, 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 so you sent me your bio and I read it and I saw that you do like, is it charity work or, or, mm. Um, yeah, I, I'm curious about, about that because I didn't have an opportunity to look at the organizations that you mm-hmm. to support. And I'd love to hear about that stuff as well. Yeah. Uh, well, I, so since the pandemic, I've been working a lot with 
non-profits in, in general, particularly the queer community, but also the East and Southeast Asian communities. Um, so with the queer community, I mainly work with a platform called We Create Space, and it's a global platform for queer leaders looking at um, aspects of self-care that's specific to, to the community. Um, and that uh, basically looks like facilitating um, somatic and embodiment sessions to workplaces, um, you know, to the to the workers who identify as LGBTQ plus within these workplaces, giving them that space to recharge. Uh, we recently had like a, a queer led retreat as well to bring these uh, individuals together so that they have a uh, space to be fully held. Um, and then in the East and Southeast Asian communities, I, I am part of uh, the Britain's East and Southeast Asian Network. And that one started, uh, well, kind of due to the pandemic where we went from being a pretty invisible community to a community that's overly represented in the, the media for all the wrong reasons. Um, and with that, we, we just wanted to create a, a positive, joyful space for people to um, feel safe in and at the same time advocating towards the, the government to to you know basically not do it anymore and and to equalize a little bit you know what what our um, rights can can be um, this September is our um, is the East and Southeast Asian Heritage Month and we're in the midst of trying to make that become recognized as a national observance in the UK um, and I guess you know the the bottom line of these involvements for me is looking at movement but you know taking it out of the 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 training and the practice of it but but what 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 is movement what what does it mean to be moved into action? What is action? Um, and those are the places that I've been moved towards. Um, and I think a lot of the time in the context of uh, when I share a movement is about empowering people to you know, take these baby steps so that they can find self-belief again in the capabilities that they have in their physical body. Um, and with that, um, you know, the hope that they will feel safe and free enough to express themselves in any way they they wish so you know i i just you know hope that through um this first kind of gateway of come and move with me could bring them to a place where they feel uh confident enough to maybe take much bigger metaphoric actions um, outside of practice you're speaking about something that i think should be chatted about more like with movement facilitators and teachers or maybe just any facilitator teachers that like what's happening inside the space or the container that is being the materials being presented mm -hmm. it's not going to stay there and not mm -hmm. just the content of it but like the influence of it is going to transcend into like people's lives and then people interact with other people and those people interact with like their ripples mm. and acknowledging like those ripples i think causes the potential for like a teacher or facilitator to really reflect on like what they're presenting and mm. or how they're presenting it yes and i think it's something that's worth really considering 
mm. even more because I think sometimes people show up and they're like, well, I know these really great moves or I know this really great content. So I'm just going to present that. Yeah. Um, and, and the context matters and the, and the how matters and the why matters in terms of like what happens after that time together. Yeah. And I think, you know, ultimately is a, a way of deepening in empathy, you know, like, um, like we've said uh, quite a few times over this past um, conversation that um, some things just cannot be expressed with, with words and things sometimes can be understood even with gibberish language. And it's that if, you know, the more time we spend in moving, um, as a teacher, facilitator, as just, you know, a mover student, when you spend time with your body and really understand what's happening in here, um, in, in this physical body that you live in every day, it allows you to become in touch with um, being able to empathize with those around you too. You know, there's a reason why that's the term kinesthetic empathy, you know, like on stage, someone could mimic of well not even on stage if you see someone fall down the stairs there's no way you wouldn't see that and not cringe because you kind of sense that too by relation it's like oh that must hurt and how can we capitalize on this in it connection that we have and continue deepening into this so that um through the resensitizing of our bodies we can then go oh yeah like you know i i hear you i see you um, and that way, you know, uh, creating a much more embodied way of of kindness that can ripple out uh, within your your community um, that do not need to be justified with words, uh, but real action and and you know the the passing gestures. You say like I hear you, I see you. It reminds mm. me of the the feeling that I think a lot of people experience of like not feeling seen or not feeling listened to. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes, again, like as teachers and facilitators, we, we forget that like, because we often have this benefit of being quite seen and being quite listened to that a lot of the people who might be arriving don't have that experience very often. It's so mm -hmm. rare. And like that feeling matters mm -hmm. deeply, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, when someone feels listened to, like they don't feel judged or they don't feel um, that there's like a right or wrong or that, that you know, they can be fully expressive, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's it. And I think that's an, a very small sliver of people, at least in the worlds that I get to move through. And maybe it's similar for you that of, of people who do get to feel listened to. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, talking about movement being this way of kind of like creating more opportunities for people to be seen is a mm -hmm. really important thing beyond what happens on Instagram. Absolutely, yeah, and I think movement has been that that element in in my life that has really saved me in in some way. You know, being brought up in a family that's often quite um, evasive and, and and quiet. You know, we don't speak much, and uh, with that, I never really knew what it meant to process emotions that was just non-existent until I found movement, and all of a sudden, I felt shifted you know in in the state that i'm in um and and then it made me realize that yeah you know like this is such a powerful um 
part of of us that can be so utilized towards kindness and and, and wellness beyond just you know i'm going to be physically fit but you know on on the mental side it's such um, a useful tool because it's our it is our tool for communication yeah right? yeah and, and way before language started <laughs> yeah so it's like the more tools we have to like communicate with the world like it's like the more conversations we can have and the more opportunities we might have to like feel that feeling of being seen or listened to totally yeah what um what are some of the things that you have coming up that you might want to share or anything um, at the moment, in terms of teaching, not much, because uh, I've just graduated, well, I haven't technically graduated, but I've just completed the, uh, my, my course, um, but things are on the horizon. I'm, I'm working on possibly creating some opportunities for um, communities to come join me for practice um, online. Uh, but also in, in person. Uh, before the pandemic, I do a lot of travel teaching, which is something I hope to do more of soon. So I guess if you are interested in, you know, uh, what has been covered, uh, you know, in this conversation, um, please do feel free to reach out through my website. And I'd be more than happy to come and meet, you know, communities uh, around the world now that things are opening up a bit more. Um, those of us in, in London, I will be starting regular classes again soon, uh, probably in November, December time in this really exciting new space called Mission. Uh, that's in East London. And it's a space that will have a whole range of different disciplines that uh, will encourage people to basically just explore movement in, in every way. And that includes yoga to calisthenics to general you know, movement mobility work um, and, and everything else. Oh, that sounds um, like an amazing space. I, I always said that I'm, I'm, as much as I love movement spaces, I've grown to really adore spaces that kind of like have a lot of different things happening under one roof, but yes. like have, but have shared values. So it's like yes. the values are kind of the same and then all the different things that are happening under the roof are different. It's a, it can be a really beautiful space. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's just um, kind of a, a really fertile ground for cross-pollination of you know sharing of information and also I think what I love about this space is they have like on the top floor is purely for um socializing and community like it's the place for people to chill after and between classes so that people can then engage in these conversations and start looking at you know this thing that we talk about like empathy um you know beyond the, the practice really connecting us as as people yeah, I think sometimes people feel like the priority always has to be like doing movement as like the kind of defined practice, but doing what we're doing or like meeting somebody for a, co for a coffee or mm -hmm. going for a walk with somebody or just laying next to somebody and not saying anything at all mm -hmm. can matter as much, if not more than those other things. Totally. Yeah. Um, do you, what is your website and your Instagram so that people can find you? Yeah. Um, on Instagram, you can find me at David Kam KW. So that's David K A M M for mother K W. And then, um, on, well, I, I would say just head to my Instagram because that's where you can find my, um, website as well, because it's basically my full name, which is a bit of a mouthful if, uh, you know, if you're trying to write it down. So, um, head to my Instagram and everything is, is there. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm so happy we got to do this. This is amazing. 
Mm, I'm really, really glad we got to connect this way, especially since you're geographically so far away. Uh, that's what I always enjoy with the the power of connecting through through Zoom and you know these kind of podcasts, invitations, and stuff.